Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? I am good. I was better, Mark. Remember the old days? You know, on those lazy, the before times on those lazy Saturday, all day gaming afternoons or, you know, on the ever so. The all day gaming you ruined, but the game with many people has been ruined by the environment. I was actually thinking wistfully today, I was remembering party games. Yes. Do you remember Wavelength? Remember, remember Wavelength? I remember Wavelength. Do you, do you remember a game called Code Names? In the I remember Code Names. I remember Skull. I remember all of these things. Remember when we just used to wander down to Yonder Gaming Store where we'd meet up with our chums and we'd play the games? I know. Uh, now, we shouldn't complain too much because there are many people who can't play games at all. So we are very, very fortunate in that we live in a jurisdiction where you can maintain a social bubble safely. But... Nonetheless, we feel a sense of privation as well, once again, underlying that we're all in this together. It is true. Now, this is a podcast about board games. We're going to talk about some board games. We're going to talk about the game that we reviewed last year. Exactly, exactly one year ago today, to this very minute, the game that we reviewed. I think that is a lie. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. And then we have some news and why it doesn't matter. And then we have the topic of the week, which is... I'm pretty sure that's it. 90% sure. <laughs> this is about rules that you either forget or deliberately ignore. So, Mark, what did we review last year? Last year, we, re- we reviewed Talon. This has been part of my years-long attempt to introduce you to GMT by baby steps. Talon, I have to say, was not one of my more successful attempts, because despite the fact that the cover art is kind of sort of the kind of thing you might expect to see in a fantasy flight offering, which is to say pretty generic sort of high color contrast, so as to catch the eye of people with short attention spans like yourself, you did not enjoy the gameplay. I, I shouldn't say that. I have, I, have, I have on my list here that it's just yet another two-player game that we don't have time to play. I remember it having some very interesting mechanism. It has the has the tiles that have a very heavy varnish or a heavy, very gloss on them because you're going to write directly on your game pieces and they're going to have initiative system and, and power and all sorts of... I remember it being very unique and interesting. I played Talon a couple times since we reviewed it with people not Walker because my recollection was that you were, were, were reasonably down on it because Talon is a very deliberately paced game because it's about large capital ships. And of all of the spaceship games that I've played, X-Wing, Armada, Talon, I've played a little bit of some of the older stuff like Starfleet Battles. Uh, Talon is by far my favorite. I am looking forward to the miniatures, the tabletop miniatures rule set by Mike Hutchison called A Billion Sons, but Talon has a special place in my heart and I absolutely adore a lot of the clever bits. And I wish I got a chance to play it more often, especially with the Talon 1000 expansion, which just bumped everything up to a thousand. True. Did we say Jim Corn? Did you say Jim Corn? Jim Crone? No, I Jim did not Crone. say that it was designed by Jim Crone. All right, Jim Crone and put out by, you already said, GMT, and it actually has a decent cover. More on that later, I'm sure. <laughs> Games we played this week. Well, it just came up on the forums today, and I'm going to talk about it now. Uh, Voyages Marco Polo is on Board Game Arena. It's a game by Simone Luciani and Daniele Tetsini. It's in North America. It's put out by Z-Man Games, and it's a fantastic Dice worker, yes, sort of dice worker placement. I don't know what if you want to call them workers or not. It's the same sort of thing. If you know, if you take up action spaces or make the action spaces more difficult to take for other people, then you can call it a worker placement in my book. And the interesting part about it is that 
they'll cost you if someone's already taken the space then it's going to cost you money and the fact that the game is different every time so i don't want to compare it to 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 walk in but i've been playing them both recently and the way i'm going to compare it is the fact that you need to analyze the whole board at the beginning of the game you need to see the all of the victory points the ways the ways you can get victory points and you have to analyze your routes and how you're going to get to those goals at the very beginning of the game, because if you don't have a game plan right off the beginning, then you're in a lot of trouble if you want to win. The Voyages of Marco Polo has been reliably one of our favorite middleweight Euro games. We pull it out kind of sort of in the same context as something like Constitutonica, not to say that they're similar or of similar quality, but they're definitely sort of relatively accessible, but very, very good for gamers. And honestly, when I heard that it was on Board Game Maria, my initial reaction was I thought it was already out. And that's because I had confused it with Yukata. It had been out, it's been out in Yukata for years. I have not had a chance to compare the implementations of either of them because ever since I was able to emerge from my quarantine cave, I burned all my computers and no, therefore no longer play games on computers anymore. Except when I have to, more on that in a moment. I was wondering what that sledgehammer pounding was I heard in the distance. No, no, magnets. Magnets. All oh, magnets. Just, just giant magnets. As a big zort and it was gone. Gotcha. Absolutely. So how's the implementation in Board Game Arena? I thought they did a great job. Have you tried the Yukata one? No, I heard, like I said, like you said, you, I remember you saying that you had already been on, and I had, I had thought that that's what was the problem, that it had been on another platform, and, you, and I meant to look into it, and then someone on the on the, on the the guild today said it was already on Yukata, so I think I, I'll go check it out and see how, on Board Game Arena, I think it's fantastic. It moves along a great clip. The other cool, interesting thing about Marco Polo is everyone gets their own character power and it's so game breaking that it's ridiculous but everyone gets one and it really leads into a strategy or a, a way to play and it makes it extra fun that is voyages of marco polo check it out it's really interesting played a few more rounds of the crew the quest for planet nine and one of the things that i really like about it especially as you go into the deeper missions is just the different kinds of things you're expected to do in the context of a trick-taking game now everyone's familiar with a lot of the solid trick-taking conventions for example in one of the missions of the crew and several of the missions actually you have to designate a player who is not going to win any tricks and everyone's familiar with this in lots of different games you have to go void or sometimes you have to shoot the moon or what have you but one of the missions in the crew has has it so that somebody, anybody, has to win a trick with a card of value one. And so watching the table conspire through the limited means of communication that you have to try to get somebody to win a trick with a, with a one value card is really cool. And it really highlights the element of cooperation. And I'm looking forward to getting into the, some of the deeper missions because some of the missions are just jacked up and difficult. You know, this mission has three requirements while this one has five. Okay, fine. That doesn't really change the formula too much. But every once in a while, as you go through the missions in the crew, and we've just been doing them sequentially, you do find some of those interesting, interesting ones that turn things on their head. And so I've been enjoying further experiences with the crew. So, you know, I got to play another GMT game. This one's called Versailles 1919. Seems Mark has finally found a distributor that is brave enough to give us review copies. So this was definitely another <laughs> review copy. And they do need to be brave when you put up board games with, with covers like this one. This is a game by Jeff Engelstein and Mark Hurtman. And it's about... Uh, negotiating the Treaty of Versailles right after World War One. I. I was hoping you could help me through this, Mark. In what way, Walker? As I, like, what 
what are what who are you supposed to be in this game? Like what are you supposed are you supposed to be one of the delegates and you're actually I explained this at the beginning of the game. Clearly when you're having some sort of fugue state and not paying any well, attention. Well, I think it was the of... fact that I was playing another GMT, my my mind was just sort of shutting down. You were the out. Americans, you were Woodrow Wilson. Oh, you're you're actually playing that. So that cover that you're... you were making fun of gotcha. actually identifies the four people in the game. That that weird brown black and white cover. Gotcha. It's called a photograph. And some of the olden times photographs are only in black and white. Now, I will grant you that the cover of Versailles 1919 is not one of the best efforts. Uh, at this point, even I must concede, the cover of Versailles 1919 is pretty unappealing. I think it's because I actually looked to see if there were better pictures of the Big Four. So the Big Four being the representatives of the Italians, the British, the Americans, and the French in the aftermath of World War One, who were the, the prime movers of the negotiations. And there are not better pictures of the Big Four. <laughs> but I'm sure individually there must be good pictures. Sure, but then you and have then that it, awful collage effect. That, exactly, that GMT is so known for. Exactly. That, you know, they use a clip art and a chainsaw to cut out the pictures. Yeah, and, and I'm saying that wouldn't have been better. Red so I think cover. between between taking a no, they didn't have to go with a, a, a picture. Now they could have shown Vittorio Orlando in a mech suit, and they could have shown Woodrow Wilson riding a dragon, and that might have been more to your taste. There we but. go. So I've been very very keen on Versailles nineteen nineteen for a while, and this is because I find Mark Herman and Jeff Engelstein both fascinating designers. And this has, was pitched as kind of sort of in a series, a sort of great statesman series. The first of them being Churchill by Mark Herman, the second being Pericles, also by Mark Herman, and this one being a collaboration with Jeff Engelstein. Churchill, I thought, was uh, very bad, promising mechanics, but the victory conditions just didn't make any sense. Pericles, I thought, was really interesting, although obtuse. And Versailles 1919 was presented by some early on, very misleadingly, is kind of sort of like Churchill, but not. Now, thematically it is. It's about the aftermath of a war or the near aftermath of a war and, collab and, and negotiating on what's going to happen. But mechanically, it's entirely different, which is for the better. It is actually mechanically most similar to the negotiation aspects, I think, of The King's Dilemma, in that you have influence and that cycles in and out of available pools that you put on issues in an attempt to determine how the issues are resolved. Except here, instead of having some sort of fantasy-ish narrative and legacy elements about what your house is doing, here you're resolving what's going to happen to Palestine. Here you're, going, you're resolving what's going to happen to the Ruhr Valley. Here you're resolving what's going to happen to Czechoslovakia, whether there is going to be a Czechoslovakia, for example. And so thematically... It is right up my alley. And mechanically, it's about negotiation, which is also a, a kind of genre that I really, really solidly enjoy. We've only played once. Walker, what were your impressions? Aside from the cover, leave the cover alone. No, I, I'm, I'm on board with you, what you've said so far. I enjoyed the fact that you're sort of negotiating every turn. I wish there was a way that they could hide the victory points because it makes the, the outcome and who's going to benefit from it so obvious that it, it's just a little bit – sometimes it's hard to negotiate – you know, you know what I'm saying? We're in King's Dilemma. It's it's sort of hidden in the background what people are going to, to get out of it. So if people's sort of victory conditions or if they somehow masked how many victory points every card was going to be worth, I think it would that part would shine way more, which is the best part of the game. I'm sympathetic. I'm just not sure after a single play for two reasons. Number one, the part that is easily calculable 
is not the entirety of your victory points. There's the other part that is less easily calculable, but there we start to run afoul of the whole issue of how often do you want to slow things down by calculating everyone's endgame score. But in a group like ours that is not particularly inclined to, to slow the game down like that, that might, emphasis might, I'd want to play more, that might give you just enough cover, just enough room to fudge things where you're not constantly identifying who the leader is trivially. The second thing is that every once in a while issues become unsettled. And so you thought you'd settled what was going to happen to Palestine. You thought there was going to be a French mandate. Nope, not anymore. Now it could be anything. <laughs> it might be independent. It might be a British mandate. All things are up. The, the only part that I find a little bit disappointing in terms of the resolution of the theme is that you have these lovely historical notes in, in the playbook. First of all, I wish some of them had been on the actual cards. You have these lovely oversized cards that represent each individual issue. And when an issue is resolved... Whoever resolves it pockets some points, but they're also going to make, choose between two to four ways to resolve the issue. And again, these are historical options about what might have happened to the Rhineland or German trade or what have you, any number of other things. And I wish there was some way to just track what people had chosen. This this, this means nothing to gameplay. Abs this is purely a thematic observation. I just wish there was some way to track on the card to remember... Oh yeah, we decided that this is what was going to happen in terms of the war debt clause, you know, things like that. And yes, I, so you could do a sum up at the end of the game, like how we, you know, exactly, yeah, just yeah, building yeah. the narrative, just exactly. a little bit of a track. And so when an issue is unsettled, you you get to specifically say, oh, maybe we're going to contest Italy's claim on Ethiopia now, rather than just saying, oh, this is a three point issue that is now being unsettled again. You know, that that extra little bit of narrative grit. And I think this would be easily trackable. I just need to get some cubes from another game. I am very very keen to play again because I have to say that on our first playing, the amount of negotiation going on was just shy of what I wanted to have happen. It was a little bit too much of an area majority game and a little bit not enough of a negotiation game. Favors were traded. People would make deals about trading tempo or turn actions to do other things for other people and people were trading this, that, and the other, but not always. Very often you'd have these overtures and then someone would shrug, there is nothing you can offer me to make this move optimal for me, so I'm just going to go do my own thing. Which is inevitable in many negotiation games, but I would have liked a little bit more. And again, those are the kinds of things that you often get in subsequent plays. So I'm very, very keen to play again. I played the solo game. The solo game is a jerk simulator because in the solo game, what you're trying to do is make sure that the world is as unsettled and unpleasant as possible, more or less, for a variety of reasons. It's a very, very simple solo a solo version. It's kind of a, uh, evocative of the solo game Peloponnesian Wars, where you're always in control of the weakest faction and your job is to make them as strong as possible. And then at a certain point, that strong faction now gets controlled by the AI and you swap out to the losers. And so you're constantly jockeying against the faction that you just made strong. And it works out really, really well. And it was also a good way to just see the different issues resolved. Anyway, all of this is to say is that I have some misgivings about uh, Versailles 1919. I really want to play again, though. And for a first play, I thought it was pretty promising. It was just the only problem, the big problem I had with it was there's sort of like unrest and there was no way to bring territories back because our Middle East went so far into the unrest. Whenever the event said, you know, cause an unrest, you'd always look down at the board and said, well, it's always going to trigger against the one that's furthest gone, right? So it was just the Middle East triggering over and over again, and it got kind of repetitive after a while. Well, there there are two ways to deal with that. One of them is, as I recall, you were a little stingy with your military. You could have been a little bit more aggressive in sending your military to quell unrest, which again, the fact that we can talk about things in these terms in a game of this relative rules lightness, I, I have to say, despite what the back of the box claims, the back of the box claims that this is sort of a mid-high complexity on the GMT scale, which is 
absurd. On their 1 to 9 GMT complexity scale, I'd put this at a 2 or 3 max, but they put it at somewhere in the mid-scale, which is ridiculous. Very, very, very rules-light. But, and number two, the alternative in that case is not so much trying to make the Middle East more stable, although one can do that in the course of the game. You should have just tried to destabilize somewhere else, especially an area that nobody cared about, like the Pacific or the Balkans, because we didn't really have much, much stake in that. But anyway, that's just me criticizing your play because you didn't even know you were the Americans, so you clearly didn't know what was going on. I also didn't know I was winning. So on to the next game. We have played a lot of games from Wolfgang Walsh this week. I finally introduced someone whose most complex game, I guess would, you could say, was... Uh, Carcassonne, right? All we, you know, that was the most thing. And we actually broke out two games. We played Taverns of Tiefenthal and we played Wingspan, which are, you know, medium games. But when you, when they, when they see the combos adding up, when they can see how one thing leads to another and how increasing something makes something better and you can see in their eyes how they, you know, connect all these dots and, and see the game come to life in front of them. And this is what I enjoy about gaming. And it happened and I love it. Watching someone transition from a rule system to a game. Exactly. Can't wait to play more of both those games because both were heavily enjoyed. And just on the on the Taverns game, I'm really glad I bought the actual copy as opposed to the digital copy. It's just something about, like I said, sort of like the advent calendar or just, you know, the, the physically flipping things over or making your deck or choosing the cards. There's something about just the tactile part of the whole game that makes it, it that took away all the worry of the, of the weakness of the rules. Did you feel that it was the joy of manipulating the components, or was it that combined with that masking that you're not really making many decisions? It's it's, it's just the whole. It's much. It's much like the. And to be clear, I think that's legit. Yeah, I'm not. Well, I'm not. No, it's it's like I said. It's just much like the bag builder, right? You know, you're just having the joy of you know drawing the cards up and filling the bar and just like busting out, and then it, it was fun. Fair enough. Played another game of Cosmic Frog. This was again on Tabletop Simulator. A little bit of a taste of the old pure quarantine times. And it's making me more and more excited for the final production version because I think the joy of actual tactile components and being able to jump 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 around with your giant plastic frog on a nice neoprene mat on top of thick chunky tiles really is going to elevate the experience from what is already a solid ridiculous romp into something that could be a genuine joy because cosmic frog this session was like every other session of cosmic frog it was wild it was deeply unfair it was incredibly aggressive it was arbitrary and it was delightful and again you have to internalize those things but once you do, it's all great. Cosmic Frog, I think, is Jim Jim Felly at his weird and arbitrary best. He's always designed weird and arbitrary games, and he's finally found the sweet spot. He needed his three three mile tall immortal Cosmic Frog muse to whisper into his ear. I don't know if they're able to whisper, but you get the idea. And this has been a, a, a glorious product. I've played it online about four or five times now, and it is marvelously quick, even with a digital implementation. So I'm very much looking forward to the physical version. And again, so long as you know what you're getting into, I think it's hard to find too much wrong with Cosmic Frog. We went over the same rules quibbles over again. You know, someone got punted out into the fourth dimension, and they drew their card. It was their turn. And for their turn, quote unquote, all they got to do was roll a die, and the die result was zero. So that was it for their turn, and they did nothing else. And all of us, each of us that were playing, were like, yeah, that's not ideal. But hey, it's Cosmic Frog, so yeah. we just kept going I think, on. I think it's just one of those things where you just sort of, you know, get on for the ride and 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 make sure you know the person, 
when you explain the rules or get people to play with you, you, ex- you make sure they know what they're in for. Well, and- that's 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 the trick, right? You can only do so much to communicate to somebody what a game is going to be like. But, and I think here's where the physical design will really help. Once you get out these big, giant cosmic frog miniatures, I think that'll really help sell the experience. Exactly. <laughs> and where you'd say you're regurgitating planet fragments into your vault, you know, but maybe that will like clue them into exactly what kind of psychedelic trip they're in for. Absolutely. The test, the test for me is this though. And so far cosmic frog has passed with a number of people. There are some people, and I myself am one of them very often that no matter how many times you tell them, this is going to be an arbitrary experience where the dice or some other arbitrary table factor is going to punch you in the face for no particular reason. Sometimes you're then able to get over yourself and enjoy it for what it is, and sometimes not. Sometimes this is about rules grit. Sometimes this is about playing time. Sometimes this is about visual presentation. Sometimes it's about theme. Sometimes it's about all those things. And sometimes I've played with people who are just not able to get over that for a variety of different games. Some of them are even Jim Felly designs, like Door of the Lesser Houses, which is my uh, another game by Jim Felly that I adore. It doesn't matter how much you tell people that this is a game about spite. Some people are then going to jump in with both feet and start spiting everybody, and some people are going to have a little bit of hurt feelings. Cosmic Frog, thus far, has not generated any hurt feelings by anybody, even when they repeatedly get the short end of the stick arbitrarily. And that, I think, is a testament to how well it's pulling off what it's trying to do. And so, as I say, I can't wait for the final version of Cosmic Frog. I finally got to introduce Mark to Reich Busters. It's a alternate World War II fight the Nazis, everyone versus the game, miniature, plastic extravaganza, dice pool chucker. But this one, I think, weighs a little bit more heavily on your cards that you get to play during your turn. What do you think, Mark? Did it play out like I thought, like I explained to you earlier? Yes, there is a strong emphasis on the cards, and there's a subtle balance between you using cards to feel like a superhero and using cards to overcome some of the fundamental limitations of your actions selection, and I felt that Reichbusters did both at various times. For example, when you move in Reichbusters, you only move one adjacent room, and you can only do that once per round. So if you're a couple rooms behind everybody, you're never going to be able to catch up unless and until you get one of those cards that says move two spaces when you move. So that that was not it at its best. And then on the other hand, there are cards that say move a space, do three attacks in succession, chug a beer, and win the lottery. And when those got played, that was fun. And, everyone, and it's a co-op game, so everyone's like, yay, go do that awesome thing. And that part was great. The noise element... The way it handles stealth, I thought, was half great and half really kind of dumb, which is okay in a game like this. It was really kind of dumb because it was very, very simple to have a couple of guards just stand in a room and all their friends are dying by the thousands in machine gun fire. But it's all happening around a corner, so they don't care. So they just sit there and they're, they're, they're sidelined. There were uh, two sorry, sorry people that we just ran past. We just literally ran past their field of view. And so like, hey, where are you? Oh, they're gone now. On the other hand, the noise system I thought was kind of cute. Uh, Whenever you do most things, you pull a card and it says, okay, well, here's your threshold. If you exceed this threshold, this terrible thing happens. If you don't exceed this threshold, then this other thing happens. And the terrible thing is usually, well, often, spawn a patrol and so more guys start showing up. So it's not inevitable that you'll end up in... Uh, what is called in stealth game circles a cock-up cascade, which is a term invented by a video game reviewer called Yahtzee. This is what happens in stealth games where everything's going fine, but if you're spotted, dealing with the person who spotted you is just going to summon more and more patrols ad infinitum, and you're in a, 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 a death loop. So you don't really end up in that because a, 
Although most of the cards spawn new guards, not all of them do. And so there's a little bit of finagle there. I liked it. I thought it was good. I didn't like how the story missions told you which characters you had to use. I feel like if you're going to have a Kickstarter with 50,000 expansions and a whole bunch of different characters, you should be able to pick whichever ones you want and be a little freeform. I prefer it when games like this aren't at a fixed player count. I prefer it when games like this give you a little bit more latitude. And so do I think that it really reaches the, the, the high level of games like this, games like Space Get It's Away missions, games like Hellboy? Eh, not really. But I still had a good time. It was nice. No, like you said, I love the sound system. What happens if you roll a bunch of dice and if you roll any successes, you fail. So you're almost always failing the soundtrack, but it's by how much you fail by. And I just had an interesting idea where you could almost, if you introduce someone to play the evil player, then you could almost play it like just like the game that we love where when the good when the good team plays they build up a bunch of adrenaline and the bad player gets level to, 7 mega level protocol. 7 mega protocol they 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 get to take that adrenaline and they use it so you could just do it the other way around all of the how they exceed the sound check by they take the ex- excess sound and they use those points to you know to make their their turn stronger that would have been really clever yeah and and maybe you know when they bring out an expansion because this game is going to do so well they'll introduce that and it'll be great generally speaking co-op games that introduce the expansion that turn it into a 1v all game tend to be pretty dodgy well and any games that come out kickstarter don't get any more expansions after the kickstarter they only get the ones that come out with the kickstarter well this and, and again this is after the tremendous effort you had to put into errata everything this is also true the bevy of keywords also weren't particularly well implemented you're going to have a whole bunch of weapons and they all have two or three keywords attached to them. And they were not very intuitive. Well, they were more intuitive than symbols. I. That is true. I.e. a Batman, particular Batman Gotham Look, game. Look, saying that you're, more, that you're more usable than the Batman Gotham <laughs> game is really low-hanging fruit. <laughs> what I'm saying is, if your weapon trait allows you to re-roll misses, and it, I can't even remember what it was called. It was called Accurate, Lethal, or Deadly. What was it? You expect me to remember? It was one of those three things. And honestly, in the context of a gun, those three things mean the same thing to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Like you said, like they could have my, called it just re-roll. My Thompson then... submachine gun was not lethal, but my, my, my revolver was. Literally, that literally happened. But if, if the weapon allows you to re-roll misses, can't you just put something like th- to that effect on the counter? Honestly, in that case, I would prefer symbols. You could probably come up with a reasonably intuitive symbol, because even after at the beginning of the game, we're looking up what all my weapons did, all two of them, I still forgot about halfway through the Anyway. Reichbusters is developed by Mythic Games, and it was designed by Jake Thornton. Speaking of re-rolls, we played another Wolfgang Walsh game called That's Pretty Clever. Now, I talked about it last week playing it solo, and that was fairly interesting. I was wanted to play it with multiple players, and we did. We played a four-player game. Mark, what did you think of this roll-and-write game? What I find fascinating about it is that in most contexts, the title can accurately describe the game, but it depends on what word you put the emphasis on. In my case, I think the proper emphasis is on the middle word. That's pretty clever. It was okay. I think that it thinks it's mitigating the luck of the dice far more than it actually is, because your third roll, your third final roll, it depends a lot on the luck of the dice, both in terms of how much you're going to be able to make use out of it and how, based on how much other people are going to make use and of it. Has, and it has, it's a huge part of the game, is Absolutely. Your, your final roll. Yes. And so in that sense, it's a little more determined by the luck of the dice than I like, and it has all the classic roll and write problems, namely that the substance of the game is almost all in this massive scoring matrix 
of five different scoring conditions, some of which key off of each other and some of which work differently from each other. And blah, 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 blah. But I think I think it's good for the game in a way and the way the mechanics work because it keeps everyone interested where other roll and rights, you're sort of just asleep while, you know, the dice go around and then it's your turn again. This one, you have a whole bunch of stuff to look at your card, you know, which goals am I going to go for? What am I, you know, what am I looking for? What do I need? You know, where should I build next turn? And you're also watching the dice because every time they put them up on the platter, you know, you can sort of figure out what you're going to do. So I think it keeps everyone engaged. I think they did a good job doing that. Sure, but it's it's mostly an illusion. From a gameplay perspective, it's all just smoke and mirrors. It is not difficult to get people excited at watching people roll dice. I mean, watching people play craps is interesting and fun because there are stakes involved. Similarly, my as-yet-unpublished game, Roll a Six, Win a Cookie, is a very, very compelling experience, both for the player and for the observers. And, you know, one assumes also for the supplier of cookies. True. Watch it. 2021. It's coming out. Get ready for it, boys and girls. And everyone in between. But ultimately, look, as far as roll and rights go, I thought it was fine. It's pretty clever. I enjoyed it. Like I said, and that's why I got it. I, I don't think we're going to find a roll and write that appeals to us, other than sort of like an era medieval type, you know, game where you're actually, instead of writing, you're like making a cool village and stuff like that. I, I just feel as though that that is what they, it's just another, in my opinion, my humble board gaming reviewing opinion they're all going to be spins on yahtzee all spins on different roll and rights game games and though they do what they do and they're a great filler game i am optimistic that the genre can overcome its impulses because as i've said before most roll and write games lean into all the worst things about euro designs lack of player interaction, and overcomplicated scoring mechanisms at the expense of quality decision-making. And I will grant you that Era, Era Medieval Age is so far my favorite of the roll and write genre, in part because of the toy factor. But I am hopeful that if the we're going to keep spending all this time in the marketplace, focusing on designs like this, that we're going to get some clever innovation in terms of these things. You can make good dice games. Euro, There are lots of quality Euro dice games. Raw the Dice Game is a is a fabulous, fabulous dice game, but it's not a roll and write. It has a lot of it has some of the similar conventions and that there's polyvalent scoring and a whole bunch of other things, but it's not it, it it doesn't fall into the same traps. So maybe this is just a question of Euro game design having to return to some of the dice game conventions of ten years ago, but anyhow. Another review copy we got from GMT was The Hunted Twilight of the U-Boats, 1943 to 1945. This is a solo game designed by Gregory M. Smith put out this year. It is a sequel of sorts to The Hunters, which covers the the submarine war prosecuted by U-boats from 1939 to 1942. And as you might imagine, from the transition from The Hunters to The Hunted, 1943 to 1945 was not an especially promising time to be a part of a U-boat crew. And this is implied, in point of fact, by the, by the salient difference in the two games is that there's a minus three modifier for escaping after you attack as a U-boat captain. Because the Allies, over the course of the years, designed better radar and sonar technology. And so being it was harder for U-boats to attack and then escape undetected. And that's effectively the rhythm of the game. There's a lot of stuff surrounding it. You get to pick what kind of U-boat you want to pilot. And there are tons of different U-boats that you can select from, some of which never even actually entered production, some of which are hypothetical units that never saw active service. But you can play them in all their glory, so they're fully realized with their own little player mat and all the technical specifications of what the boat was supposed to do. Or you could stick with the mainstay, the 7C, which was the sort of default workhorse U-boat of that stage of the war. 
And then you go out on patrol, which is randomly determined. And then when you're out on patrol, you roll for random encounters on each of your little transit spaces. And then you decide what you're fighting, and basically you decide whether to engage or not. And if you engage, you roll to see if your torpedoes hit, roll to see how much damage they do, and then roll to see if you're detected. And that's the key roll. Try to find out if they spot you afterwards. And honestly, there's a question that I often encounter, and it showed up recently in the guild. And the question is as follows. Mark, why are you such a despicable degenerate? To which my answer is usually, why do you keep asking me that, Dad? But another related question that I often get is, I'm interested in getting into war games. What war game should I play? And my answer is always the same. What interests you? You should play a war game about a subject that interests you. And if your answer to what interests you is, I think submarine warfare is kind of cool and or I'm interested in U-boats, let me tell you, the hunters and the hunted are going to satisfy you to no end because the amount of technical detail that is rendered in these games is amazing. They care about what kind of torpedoes you're launching. They care about what kind of homing systems are employed. They care about what kind of anti-radar coating that you have on your U-boat and what year and what month that was rendered into. They care about all the specific service medals that you can win as a U-boat commander. They care about the conditions of promotion. They care about the tonnage of various capital ships that U-boats attempted to sink over the course of the war. And all of this is rendered in a very, very accessible and very simple sort of roll-to-see-what-happens game. And so the question is, do those technical details appeal to you in a way that makes the gameplay engaging? For me, the answer was yes, despite the fact that I had no prior particular enthusiasm for these technical details of U-boats. I would compare this most saliently to a game that I've talked about a couple times over the course of the show, and that is Thunderbolt Apache Leader, which is about close air support. Do you find the Thunderbolt or the Warthog interesting? Do you find the Apache helicopter interesting? Do you find the different kinds of guided and unguided munitions that they deployed interesting? Do you care about the technical specifications about what year the refit was introduced so that the A-10 Thunderbolt became the A-10C? Do you care about the Spectre gunship, etc., 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 etc.? And so sometimes the way you get into historical war games is not really about historical events, but more about tech, more about the sort of obsessive interest in various kind of technical specifications and the gear involved. And there's a joy in going down these rabbit holes. And I think The Hunted does a very, very good job at making this stuff interesting. Now, it's not all perfect because, as I said, you can play one of a dozen different kinds of U-boats. The manual and the game doesn't tell you at all what those U-boats were designed to do. Now, it emerges it, it emerges from the fact that some of them were mine layers, and if you take those, they don't have torpedo tubes, and they go get sent on mine-laying missions. But I would have liked, especially when starting a game, just a simple little blurb, and again, war games can be so good at just giving you a bird's-eye view or extra little bit of texture, even if you already know or if you don't already know about the technical details, just letting you know, oh, by the way... it. Absent everything else, try a 7C. They were the workhorse. Instead, I had to go to Wikipedia to look all this stuff up. And yes, it is fair to assume that most wargamers already come with a, a certain degree of background knowledge that is part and parcel for that part of the hobby. But for people like me, who are interested in the design element as well, and might therefore try war games that are a little bit outside my historical background knowledge, it might be helpful to have these little bits of additional details. So, are you interested in the emergent narrative of captaining a U-boat and predating on allied shipping lanes? That is the question you need to ask yourself. If you're at all interested in that, I highly recommend The Hunters and the Hunted. 
depending on your level of masochism. Do you like winning? Try the hunters. Do you like losing? Try the hunted. That is my, my fundamental bit of recommendation. And or do you like more toys but harder challenge? Because that's definitely what happens in the hunted. And I've been doing a lot of reading, some technical, most not technical, about the different U-boat models and the development of the war. And I've been finding it fascinating. And I have to thank the hunted for giving me that level of interest. Will I go back to it? Well, it depends. I think this has actually been making me want to play Thunderbolt Apache Leader again, because again, I have a little bit more affinity for those machines, that kind of theater, that those kinds of operations. And it is very much a sort of roll 2d6, find out what happens kind of design. So the fact that it works as an engaging game is a little bit of a miracle, but I do like a little bit more tactical decision making beyond just picking what kind of torpedo to fire at the thing that you have to go hunt. It's very much for fans of the genre and fans of this period. I'm very glad to have given it a try, and that is The Hunted, Twilight of the U-Boats, 1943-45. to Those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it does not matter. Mark, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but Aliens has decided to take their game back. They lost it to Space Hulk back in the day. Now they've decided to take their game back. There'll be <laughs> there'll be more dark corridors with blips and hordes of aliens and gunning them down. Apparently, this game from Gale Force 9 was supposed to come out a couple years ago. I'm sure we talked about it. We did. But now on their Facebook, they've, they have it for pre-order. And they have it on their Facebook, they announced that official October release. So it all comes out with two expansions already ready to go for the low, low price of $150. Well, they claim that the base game, Another Glorious Day in the Core, will be available in October, and they claim that the other two expansions will be available before the end of the year. They have made similar claims before. As you say, there's a two-year period of alternating promises that will go unfulfilled, followed by crushing silence, followed by other promises that go unfulfilled. So I'm going to believe it when I see it. I was tempted to pre-order, but then I remembered, they've been jerking us around for two years. I'm going to wait until it hits store shelves, despite the fact that I'm very enthusiastic. So I talked last week about some technical glitches that we got to see some advanced previews. There was another one. There was a, a Descent book that was released, and in the UK listing it said you know, uh, out just in time as the new Descent comes out, you know, as to introduce the new Descent. And when I read this article, they're defending, well, it's just about time because the first Descent was out in 2005 and the next one came out in, in, in 2012. So that was seven years and it's been seven years since, you know, the last second edition came out. And to that, I say, well, uh, the last expansion for this second edition came out in 2019, which was just last year. And for them to put out a new edition now is kind of, kind of bad. Well, I couldn't help but notice that the listing for this novel, one of the listings, one of the regional listings omitted the mention of a new edition of Descent. Whereas, as you say, the British listing, I believe, is the one Correct. that preserved the original listing. So I, I don't know. I'm not particularly interested in reading tea leaves. FFG fans have had to do this for a while because, to their credit, FFG doesn't announce a game until it's very, very close to being ready. The only substantial delays they've ever had in this in recent ha uh, history were because of coronavirus, and I'm not going to hold them accountable for that. And that just held up the releases for a few months for everything. Things like Cosmic Encounter Duel and, and, and other things in that release cycle. So I don't know. We'll see it when we see it. I just... Uh... I don't see another... I don't... I myself just don't see another reason for a, a, a Descent 3rd Edition. Money. Yeah, well, money. For sure, for them... That's a money. That's a good them, reason. For them, 100%. <laughs> for me, like, I can see the... the. I can't see them 
making it that much better than it already is at the moment. It's already app-driven. It already has thousands of really nice detailed miniatures, tons thousands. of characters characters to choose from, whereas the, the, the older edition, you know, it was harder to, and easy to get, whereas the first edition was almost hard, impossible to get the expansions. And anyway, not going to go on about it. Like you said, maybe this is a red herring. This isn't necessarily news, Walker, but just as a sort of a tangent, here we are talking about Reichbusters, we're talking about Aliens, we're talking about Descent. You know what we, need, we really need to do? What do we need to talk about, Mark? We need to play Heroescape. Agreed. We need, just like, yeah, we just tired of all these also-rans, man. It's true. Yeah. It's like right behind us. It's, it's literally five feet away, and it, it hurts me, hurts my soul. Yes. So we both played Not Alone. Not Alone is back on Kickstarter. They were putting out an expansion called Sanctuary. This is a stronghold going back into the Kickstarter market. And it's a very interesting game where one person plays, you know, the alien type thing, and they are just trying to guess what locations the players are going to go to. And they just play cards out, trying to guess. Interesting game. Look into it if it's all at all interesting. I really liked it for a quick one v all game. I thought it did it did a, got a lot of things right. Before I go on about our Patreon show and some things I talked about there, we've played or you mostly have played a lot of Tam Tammy Hall lately. Not especially lately. Not since I discovered I was playing it really, 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 really wrongly. I've been meaning to go back to it though. This being well, now you can do it when the new edition comes out. I will use the edition I already have. Thank By you very much. Pandasaurus Games are putting it out a new edition, so look forward to maybe they'll brighten up the art a little bit. It was a little drabby and brown, and maybe they'll introduce some new exciting rules, like maybe dinosaurs will attack or something. They're like, who knows? Maybe they should have a black and white picture of Vittorio Orlando on the front cover. That would definitely make things better. So there was a very interesting designer diary from Rita Modal on Board Game Geek. Rita Modal, the designer of Men at Work, the lovely pretzel games dexterity game. And in it, she talks about her upcoming game, King of Twelve, which is described as kind of a cross between trick-taking and dice. Everybody has a D12. You play cards with lovely art to try to influence up or down the, the values of uh, the dice in front of the various players. And at the end of the round, whoever has the highest unique value die wins. And I was very intrigued by some of the design elements of Minute Work, although, again, like many dexterity games, I felt it fell apart in terms of the victory conditions, but it's definitely a delightful design. And so I'm very much looking forward to Rito Modal's future output, and uh, that is going to be King of Twelve. So every so often we do a little Patreon extra where we talk about a bunch of Kickstarter games, and sometimes I forget to mention them on the news, or because I think I've already talked about them, sometimes I forget. Where I've spoken about them. Or but, where you are, or, or where what I am. speaking yeah, is. I'm, I'm or... getting kind of old, you know. So anyway, Perseverance, Castaway Chronicles, it's by Mind Clash Games. It's by the same people that brought us Tricarion and Anachrony. And Cerebria. And Cerebria. You keep you keep failing to mention the one that well, I love the most. I know, because it's, it's just seems, it's so, the art style is so different than the other it two. It is different. The, the other two are very sort of... And this is one of the reasons why I don't like them as much. I, I like them just fine, but they're very sort of medium-heavy worker placement games. And Eurozone, the Eurozone has millions of those, and Cerebria is just so different and refreshing, and that's one of the reasons why I love it so yeah, much. Yeah, and why I keep forgetting that it's in the same Fair universe. enough. Anyway, this looks – I at first I thought it was yet another one of these crazy train wrecks because it was so much, and I thought it was going to be a first-time – Kickstarter, but anyway, these people have experience. This is going to be sort of, it's not, it's, it's going to be two games in one box. 
they're not supposed. They're supposed to be completely different. They use the same sort of components, and it's not going to be a campaign or anything in that way. They just sort of, sort of follow the same sort of story arc. You're this uh, big cruise ship that crashes on this dinosaur island, and you've got to defend against them attacking you, and then you've got to, you know, work your way out onto the onto the island. So it's a game about the dangerous relics of ages past, namely cruise ships. Exactly. I, I found that awfully odd. Like when I was watching the video, I'm like, really? Cruise ships? Speaking of. So did, did you get the joke though? You yeah. thought I was talking about dinosaurs? Yeah. And yeah. It's just, no, no? Yeah. No, no, yeah. Another you know, thing that died out. Yes. Right, I got okay. it. I got I just it. just want to make sure. I was there did you get you. it? Did you get it? We also talked about Catapult Kingdoms. A listener directed it to our attention, thought it was up our alley, to which my response is, oh, yeah, we're definitely on top of that. And the last thing we talked, like I want to talk about, which we talked about, was a game called Escape the Night, the board game. And I, I felt bad. <laughs> and I said the the less we talked about, it, but then I felt bad. I thought it was it was the wor- the most terrible thing, and and everything else. And and then I I felt bad because then I watched the actual. There was a show that I was based on, and I watched the I watched the actual show, and I felt bad that I called the game that was coming out terrible because it's not the most terrible thing. It's the actual show that's the most terrible thing I've ever seen. Nailed it. So yes, so less we say about Escape the Night, the board game, the better. See, see that that that's what a supportive host does, Walker. An obvious joke <laughs> that's telegraphed a mile away. You wait for it, and then you offer some sort of rim shot. Gotcha. Instead I, I of systematically that. undercutting me, I, I I appreciate it. So when you get the idea of hey, I I I really enjoyed something. Maybe I should make a board game about it. Um, don't. Can we stop dunking on this? <laughs> no, man. You gotta watch it. It's the show itself. The premise is taken right out of the Clue rulebook, and the entire board game itself, I think, is taken right out of the Clue, the Clue rulebook, and it's it's painful to watch it to uh, see how many. Because we've talked, I've talked about this before. It's the same sort of genre as Exploding Kittens, or like we talked about last week, Cards Against Humanity, where you get these huge games that hit the mass market and hit the public, and sometimes this is someone's first either a first game or first modern game. Like, you know, they finally broke out. We finally get one of these new games into their hands. And it's one of these terrible games. And it is, is unfortunate. And that is the news and why it does not matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is I'm pretty sure, kind of sure, 90% sure. So for whatever reason, there are certain kinds of rules and I'll, I'll, I'll be mostly talking about kinds of rules that tend to either slip my mind or I deliberately ignore. There are some kinds of rules, some kinds of terminology that I deliberately skip over because I don't want to have to deal with it. And let me start with what I think is pretty universal. I think almost everyone does this. And that is start player. Yeah, I have, I have mine in sort of like uh, the order of play. So yeah. at least the first few. And I, that's what I have at the very first thing. Choosing the first player. Now, some of them, I have to give credit to some of the more clever instances, are playing, making fun of this phenomenon. I remember one game said specifically that the start player was the one, the one who most recently went to space. Or indeed, kind of upping the ante, I also remember a game that said the player who most recently left the solar system. Just to make absolutely clear <laughs> that this <laughs> that, was nonsense. That they don't care. Or the one with the fullest beard. I like that. That was my, one of my... Yes. Now, there are lots of deterministic ones that are just silly, but... 
I remember back in the day, just, just as a, a, a pan to a simpler age, I remember back in the day when all there were were really uh, accessible middleweight euros, there was actually a design philosophy behind this. And the idea was, if being start player was advantageous, you give it to the youngest player. If being start player was disadvantageous, you give it to the oldest player. Again, just the notion that all of these games are meant to be family games. You know, back in the era of El Grande and Catan and things like that. But we've, uh, we're have we pretty far past that. And so now start player is obviously regarded as a ridiculously arbitrary thing. Unless, of course, you have games where, with simple simple tiebreakers, things like Scythe. You know, you just look down at the player board in the early. Yeah. But definitely, if it's not something like that, if it's meant to be some sort of other non-component thing, my eyes glaze over and I ignore it. Yeah, some of these things I have listed here, usually I can pull the game out and explain it, you know, not touching the rule book. So a lot of these things are the one and only things that I have to go look in the rule rule book to double check. And that is the first player compensation. Like usually mm. when, when someone's given the first player marker, then everyone else is given some sort of monetary compensation. And you sort of, I usually have to, you know, go back into the book and, and remember what, exactly what that is. Or hey. even if there is one at all. Hand size as well. Any of those arbitrary numerical limits that apply during setup are so easy to forget. And sometimes I'm not, let me be very, very clear, especially because they're basically arbitrary. I'm not saying that they're entirely arbitrary, but I'm saying that, you know, you're not going to, generally speaking, you're not going to break a game by changing the hand size from five to six. Sometimes you may, and I'm not saying that there's no reason to prefer one over the other, but it's because it's, it's not directly tied to what's going on in the game, it can be very easy for that bit of data to be unmoored in your mind. I have exactly the same thing. Starting hand size, starting money, or just all your starting stuff. You know, what you get at the beginning game and how many of it. Yeah, and this is stuff that, just to be very clear, I'm not saying that I ignore any of this stuff, and I'm not saying that when I set up a game, I'm like, eh, I guess we all start with four bucks, just take four bucks, whatever. Yeah, no, this is the things that, you know, the one and only thing we, you know, you have to look in the rulebook four, you right? Say, yep. Oh, is four, and the rulebook goes back in the box, and it's never touched again. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this is opposed to some elements of the rulebook that I deliberately ignore, which is very often technical terminology. And the classic example for the uh, for this uh, for me of this is supplies. You have your you have the supply that is available to you, and the supply that is not available to you. You have to do something to get them into the latter supply, into the former supply. You have to play a card, or you have to pass your turn, or whatever. And for every game that I explain. I don't use what the game tells you to use. I use good supply and bad supply because everyone understands what that means. The good supply you can access immediately. The bad supply is the more difficult one. Yes, like how many games do we play that are like that where they use terrible terms that that can be that can be inferred as the other or yes. you, or get them mixed up so we just like you say we the use worst the same example thing. of this for me is the very excellent area majority game Louis the Fourteenth by Rudiger Dorn. Let me ask you a question, Walker. Which of these two terms you think is the good supply and which one you think is the bad supply? All right? Gotcha. I'm ready. Supply and stock. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Because those are the two terms that they use in Louis Fourteenth. I think supply is the one you can use and stock is the one that you have to get it from. Wrong. Damn it. Yeah. Now, the the trick is, and I've talked about this before, but it still sticks out in my mind. This practice of mine is so is so rooted of discarding all these technical terms that I, that I sometimes get in trouble. I twice, not just once, Walker, but twice, explained El Grande from start to finish using what I thought were more reasonable terms, good supply, bad supply, and cubes, rather than court, provinces, and caballeros, respectively, only to then remember, oh wait, the action cards make specific reference to these things. They specifically talk about impacting the court or the provinces. I'm like, okay, guys, forget what I said. They're not cubes anymore. They're caballeros. It's not the good supply. It's the court. 
But honestly, wherever I can, I just dispense with that and move on. We get into trouble with this as well, because when there's a game that has interesting wooden resources, we tend to name them silly things, and sometimes cards reference what they're actually supposed to be, and then we get into trouble. Have we encountered that recently, though? No, I have nothing think... recently, but I'm sure you know one day we will. Re- because all that I can remember recently is how much success we've had, particularly in terms of the voyages of Marco Polo. It's it's now firmly rooted that we don't have silk, we have lumpy space princesses, we don't have camels, we have cancer ducks, and it's just... It's very confusing when I talk to the people on Board Game Arena when I say, how do I get the Cancer Ducks? They, they have no idea what I'm talking about and then kick me from the game. I, I, <laughs> it's, it's troubling, but I, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to stick with the one way I do it. The other thing I sometimes do, you, you're playing a game and you look over and Billy's got 15 cards in his hand and you sort of think, hmm, maybe there's a hand limit. I better check that. <laughs> Yeah, arbitrary resource limits, just resource caps. At the end of the round, you can't have more than N of a thing. Again, very much like initial hand size, it's often very arbitrary. I remember when we were playing Fantastic Factories, and you explained the rules, and I'm willing to believe that you actually explained it, and then you had to remind me, oh, by the way, at the end of the round, you can't carry more than 10 resources over. I then accused you of being a filthy liar, and I flipped the table in your face, and I I threw the glass on the floor. But I'm still picking chits out of my nose. Thanks for that. No problem. Player count in this day and age of... Of, really? Uh, well, of, of Kickstarters and expansions, and sometimes you're piling everything into one box. So the box itself says one to four, but you've got expansions for one through six, and you, you didn't quite remember, and so you have to flip through all the things. Say, hmm. Oh, is there extra players now, or is there not extra players? And you're not quite sure. I haven't had that problem. Have you ever been in a position where you chose a game for a group and you were starting to set up only to realize that no no not as far as setup it'd be more like it's like you know i got several expansions for this game let me just quickly see if it with one of them increased the player count you know the outside of the box is one to four so you say that it's an expansion thing but i've had to correct you a couple times on games without expansions about what the proper player count oh yeah is. true 100 percent. if okay. i don't actually see it you know i'm sometimes i think it can play more or less so i'm definitely we we sort of the next one i have we sort of already got in trouble with it this this uh weekend we sort of stuck with what the book said only because I just wasn't sure of the balance. And that is suggested setup for the first time or suggested characters. So Reichbuster said, you know, you should use these characters. So we actually did use those characters, but most of the time I would say 99% of the time we just roll our eyes and take the characters we want. For a while, sometimes rule books would say, we strongly suggest bold with underlines that for your first play, you do not play with, you know, asymmetric character powers. And again, 99% of the time I ignore it. There's one class of things that I, that I do follow though. And that is things like deck construction, where they say, look, you can either play with full on deck construction or you can play with these recommended decks. It depends on how complicated the deck construction is though, for something like Aristea, for something like Elo Darkness, where you're only choosing a small number of cards, say a dozen or fewer. I'm perfectly willing to go with full on deck construction, but for something we've been talking about Cerebri, well, I've been talking about Cerebri, you keep forgetting it. Cerebri, you have a 20 card deck. Warhammer Underworlds, you have a full deck. There, for first time play, I will follow the recommendations and give some sort of prefab combination, but the rest of the time, it's, it's usually very silly. Like, for example, Taverns of Tiefenthal is, has in its rulebook, they say, look, for your first game, we strongly recommend going no further than module three. But if you play with, just with module three, it's a, very simple game. And if you play up with Module 5, it's still very doable, even for people who are only used to light Euros. So, yes, 99% of the time, I ignore that recommendation entirely. There's another paragraph, though, that I read 
in so many rulebooks now, and this is just the influence of the kind of design space we're living in. And this isn't so much a rule I ignore, but a rule that ends up feeling superfluous most of the time. And that is the golden rule. If cards contradict the rulebook, the card takes precedence. I've read that so many times in so many different rulebooks. I don't have to ignore it, but it's just at this point my eyes glaze over and I skip to the next paragraph. So if there was ever useful information buried in that paragraph, I guarantee you I would miss it. Other things we ignore is usually scoring in party games. And lots of party games, they have this, you know, intricate, ridiculous scoring mechanism at the end. We just sort of point at the person that lost the most and laugh, and that's what we do. You do that. I still pay a little bit of attention to and scoring in party games. The other thing we do is just most rules in party games themselves and in and in or light dexterity. Again, games, speak for yourself. It's we usually throw most of the stuff out of the window. We concentrate on we what we know is fun and we do that and then and then Disregard the rest. Well, sometimes after subsequent playings, yes. But sometimes, especially for your better party games, like code names, like Wavelength, the scoring conditions are very, very simple and very straightforward and definitely give a sense of completion because a lot of scoring, a lot, I will grant you, a lot of party games, for me, it's not so much the scoring conditions, it's the end game conditions that I tend to ignore. No, when they're good and and smooth, 100%, we always follow them. But when they're arbitrary and silly and overly complicated and take away from the game, then we just usually glaze over them. Well, very frequently for me, party games as well as trick-taking games recommend too many rounds of play or sometimes don't even recommend enough rounds of play. And so for a lot of party games, when it comes to the end game condition, if it strikes me as fundamentally arbitrary, I, I, I'll often ignore it. Almost like catacombs, right? They want you to go through like seven scenarios to complete right. a game. And we say, oh, no, we're not going to do At that, that point, we're verging to house rules. But yeah, those are some of the, the fundamental things we, we ignore. Groups. And score pads, right? We just usually, a lot of times, I sort of like using them because it's sort of like a history in the, inside the game, like I like to, you know, when we open up, see what we've done last. But a lot of times we just glaze over that and add up our own scores. Uh, when a game says miss a turn, we just say, no, we're not doing that. It's dumb. When an, Yeah, that we'll, we'll often house roll that very quick. When yeah. a game says roll to move, then we pack it up and put it back in the box and throw it in the window. <laughs> in that case, we ignore all the rules. Uh, a lot of the tokens that are like resource multipliers, they very seldom get used. We usually like just to pile up the you know large quantities. Hopefully there's enough of them. When a game says it can have open info or, you know, Everything's supposed to be open information. Very seldom do we, you know, go through people's discard piles or, you know, make sure we know everything that's going on or... Sure, but by the same token, we don't bar people right through. No, 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 we don't stop it. But I'm saying us as players, when there's an event deck that has very, you know, cool and interesting themes and the game says, you know, you you should know what's coming up or you're allowed to go through it, we usually say no, or I usually say, no, I don't want to, I want it to be a surprise. Or even when the game's over, you know, a lot of people say, oh, what could we have got? It's like, no, I want to wait next game. I'll see something new and different. Sure, but that's just a rule we ignore and more an option we don't take advantage of. That's the only distinction I'm drawing. For me, there's a particular package of rules in skirmish-type games that I just get jumbled up in my head and I can't keep them straight. Somebody very helpfully in a blog post wrote like sort of a schematized, arbitrary set of miniatures rules. And it was just, here are all the rules that all miniatures game systems need. And it just gave a series of boilerplate rules. And it was so boring and that it proved its point miraculously. But for me, when, whenever I play a skirmishy type game, uh, there are certain things that I often just either forget to internalize or often bleed into each other. Like, for example, can you move through friendlies? 
These are, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, sometimes it doesn't matter. Are you allied to yourself? Because the term allied is often overused in games like this. And then there is whether or not you're allowed to finish, uh, whether whether you have to finish one action before starting another. 95% of the time, you do have to finish one action before starting another. So in that rare instance where you can interleave actions like in Aristea, I often get caught flat-footed. So I have to remember, I have to spend the effort to remember when it is the case that you can do those things. And there's a bunch of other things about, you know, if there's a square grid, is diagonal adjacent. I was about to say, then there's the word adjacent, yes. which is so painful. Well, it's just diagonals in general on, yeah. on square grids. Or, you know, sometimes it's, it's adjacent when you're moving, but, you know, then the shooting rules are completely different as to what's adjacent and what's not adjacent. Sure. And blah, 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 blah. I have, there's those cards that when you flip up, it says, when this card is flipped up, then reshuffle everything. And sometimes you just go, uh, well, we're too close to the top. We'll just slide that in underneath and we'll get to that one later. Who's this we that you keep talking about? I thought uh, you played games mostly with me, but you must Well, be- I have this, uh, any rule spoken by Mark. Oh, sure. That's, that explains, my, that's my last point here. That explains a lot. For me, one thing that I often forget that I really shouldn't. There's two packages of rules that I often forget that I really, really need to be better on. One of them is what specifically you do at the end of your turn. And this is especially prevalent in terms of card games. Do you discard your hand? Are you allowed to discard your hand? Are you obliged to discard your hand? And in a lot of games, this makes all the difference. I remember the first time I played Dominion, the very first time I played Dominion immediately after it got released, I missed the rule where you discard your hand at the end of, at the end of, at the end of your turn. It's not much of a game if you don't discard your hand. It was bad. It was embarrassing. I felt bad, and I still feel bad. On the other hand, the first time I played Battle for Baternia, in Battle for Baternia, your heroes respawn when they show up again in the discard pile, and you never reshuffle your deck. So there's a strict timer on these things. And you can discard cards from your hand to try to expedite that process. But I had forgotten that that was an option. I just thought, oh, well, you know, you just drop your hand size. Because in a lot of card games, you cannot voluntarily slough off cards. So that's the kind of thing that I often forget that I really, really need to remember better. The other thing that I often remember to talk about, except before the very end of the game, is what miscellaneous resources give you points. And I often just completely forget. I don't forget just that I have to have to mention that they exist. I completely forget what it is. And so it's about a turn before the end of the game, and suddenly I'm like, oh, wait, I think we score a whole bunch of points at the end of the game, and I start rifling through the rule book. Really need to do better at that. Yeah, it's like, usually with games, the currency, you have to look it up. It's like, is it for every 10 is a victory point? Or, is it every five? Is it or, nothing at all? Or is it every single one, like Scythe? Every, you know, every gold piece is a victory point. Well, that that's less end game scoring and more just things, that you, just yeah. points you're accumulating over the course of the game. Another thing that I often forget that I don't feel bad about is tiebreakers. People, I've never encountered a situation where someone got upset that I didn't mention what the tiebreaker condition is, unless it's a game where ties are borderline inevitable. There's some games where, you know, the final score is going to be like six or something like that, and a lot of people are going to get to that at the same time. This occasionally would happen in games of Tribune, Primus, and Tripyrus, for example, because the winning score is usually four or five. And so the tiebreaker is, is handy to know. In that case, I tend to remember. But honestly, in all other cases, if it's the last turn of the game and someone's like, what's the tiebreaker condition? I look over, it's like, oh, it's not gold. It's instead, it's the other resources. Usually the response is, huh, rather than why didn't you tell me that in the first place? As opposed to endgame scoring where a lot of people are like, can be legitimately upset that I forgot to tell them. 
So clearly we're forgetful individuals who play fast and loose with the rules. That's right. Why do we even look at the rule book? I have to say, though, that based on comments from other people, I have to imagine that a lot of this is representative of other people. When you play literally hundreds of games, a lot of these details are bound to start escaping you. And these are some of the categories that tend to be a little more slippery in, in one's memory. So thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you've sent us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we very much hope to see you again soon. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>